Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Taryn Hughes. He's a performance and sales mindset coach. He's the author of a fabulous book called The Conscious Sale. Taryn, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Excellent. Would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your background and what got you to this point? Love to. Corporate sales for over 20 years. I have enjoyed the sales experience from knocking on doors, selling internet connectivity to businesses at the uh, very beginning of my sales career, and uh, moved towards um, sales leadership towards the end of my career where I spent seven or eight years working for a large multinationals. I got disillusioned with the corporate, the corporate machine, and in 2015, I negotiated my exit and decided to leave corporate behind and do a little bit of self-searching and try and understand what it was I wanted to do with the next chapter. That led me to an entrepreneurial business group that had the heart of what it did, mindfulness, which was a breath of fresh air for me. I wasn't particularly inspired at that moment to start a business, but what it did trigger was the desire to write the book, The Conscious Sale, which I spent another two and a half, three years writing. I moved to Barcelona uh 2016 beginning 2017 to finish writing that and i've been stuck here since so living the expat life loving it excellent well tell me this who or what have been your biggest influences that got you to the point where you were ready to write the conscious sale great question i've been impacted by certain managers throughout my career which has been fantastic i've been very fortunate that on balance, I've had more better managers. And when I say better, they've instilled a sense of integrity to sell with integrity, good sales leadership, good sales practice bestowed upon me. So I've drawn upon quite a lot of those figures to decide who I want to be as a sales professional and who I want to set as an example. In more self-development terms because I went through this massive shift in my life, uh, leaving that corporate world co- coincided with a load of personal challenges. And I found self-development as a, as the, the likes of Eckhart Tolle, fantastic yeah. for refocusing my, my lens on what it was I was about, who I was and what I am, what I am capable of doing here. So there's been a number of sort of self-helps. I, I, Influenced by um, Simon Sinek's um, Start With Why significantly, it's, it's uh, the way I start my book because it really did make me look at why I was doing not just the professional leader, leadership dimension, but a wider encompassing sort of approach too. So I know you and I both share some um, values. I'm curious about your journey through sales ethics to come to the point where uh, you put the customer at the heart of everything that you do, that it's about service, not civility or servitude, but being of service, of uh, behaving with integrity. I'm curious uh, about uh, your views on sales ethics generally within corporate sales. To me, they're something I hold very dearly and I believe they're incredibly important. And I think in the pursuit of corporate profits, they've been squeezed. And the consequence of squeezing that view is that we we have, a, as, a, as a sales profession, there's a high degree of misperception about what the customer represents. That client is not a means to an end, which is how we are led to see them. They're a means to making your number. 
everything is everything is framed as something to be attained in the future rather than being present in what they're doing. So the the ethics of selling with integrity, so solely serving those that which they need rather than that which I need, because that's what's demanded of me from my employer, never sat well with me. And you know, truthfully, on those a couple of occasions that I did sell in my past career, that I knew in my heart of hearts I probably shouldn't have sold that deal because. It wasn't aligned in why and, and the need and the how, and I knew it was going to come back and bite me, and it did. True to true to my uh, my, um, my belief about it, it came back and bit me firmly on the ass. And you know what? I was quite grateful for that because it was a it was the necessary reminder as to why you behave the way you do. Because actually, life becomes more cooperative if you play nicely with it rather than try and subvert other people's ideas to, to your own desires and objectives. This is really interesting because I, I'm, go, I'm going through a period of review and renewal, and it's forcing me to ask some really difficult and challenging and uncomfortable questions about what constitutes a great salesperson. Because historically, We've looked for things like prospecting habit and competitiveness and all of this kind of stuff. But the Gong survey that came out or research that came out very recently indicates very strongly that women are outselling men by a serious factor. And what's really interesting is eight out of 10 of the best salespeople I know on the planet today are women. And they like to win, but they like to win with their customer. They don't like to win against their customer. Um, they are incredibly compassionate, collaborative. They are fantastic at generating discretionary effort from all those people involved, uh, even if they don't directly benefit from making the sale. They are more like partners to the customer. They turn up with the express intention of helping. They're not about transactions. They're not about making their number. When they prospect, they prospect for customers who are going to be a customer in 5, 10, 15 years' time. Those customers go with them wherever they go. And I think we really, really need to revisit um, who it is that we hire, why we hire them, and how we drive their behavior. Because a lot of these women are successful in spite of how they're managed, in spite of how they're measured, in spite of pressure from management to be very corporate America, corporate UK. And so I'm curious about your thoughts in terms of how we need to rethink what great looks like in sales. I see it coming down to women are better at being rather than, not they're better than doing, but it's a case of being rather than doing. Who we are being, that embodiment of what we're talking about, those those core qualities, those values, I think women connect much more closely than men or align much more easily with that because that's their true sense of who they are, their true nature. And maybe I'm stereotyping men here and generalizing a bit, but I think it's easier for us to adopt the battle cry from someone who is very charismatic and very energetic and passionate about this particular objective. And we buy into that very wholeheartedly and we adopt the doing rather than the being. And for me, that 
awareness of who we are being, where we're coming from as a sales professional, any professional in that respect, will resonate very loudly with all those around you because you'll be recognized for something that has an inherent innate quality about it or about them. And, and, and that comes down to the, the intention behind what they're doing because I'm, I'm very big on intention because I think without intention, we are kites blowing in the wind. We, we revisit the, the past situations and, and often not, not favorably. So to, to review what we're doing when we're recruiting is to maybe let go so rigidly to the, the function, the doing aspect of it, and take that as a if we if we were able to see sales as a as a profession educated and taught in the universities as we would say a lawyer or a doctor we would change the doing and we would align that more effectively to those good qualities that we've spoken about. Then there could be more emphasis on who we are being when we're executing those qualities. And if we come from that beingness of, of conscious service, the doing is enhanced and imbued with better energy. That, that's my take on it anyway. Again, if we look at the survival rates of businesses, women-run businesses tend to have longer survival rates. If we look at the survival rates of uh, male-run businesses, the ones that have the greatest longevity tend to be the ones that are led by, in this terminology, uh, steady relators rather than high dominance. High dominance have about a two to three year life cycle, 80% of the time, whereas steady relators, 80% of them last five years or longer. So again, those qualities like compassion, focus on others, recognizing that you need to be fully present, that you take people as they are and you meet them where they are. You don't try and shoehorn them into the stereotype or uh, where, you, where you want them. This is one of the reasons why I have so um, many issues with the way sales is trained, it's managed, because I think there are so many trainers out there that are fixated on teaching technique without the underlying psychology, without the correct intent. And then uh, the technique becomes negatively manipulative and it becomes like a cudgel. And actually, it should be a shield to protect both sides. When you apply a technique, it should be done with compassion, uh, with the right intent, which is to serve the customer's outcome and help them achieve their success. But I see time and again, salespeople who've been brought up through what we would term now traditional selling, where the closing is this great skill that you see on virtually every job description. Closing is about creating a mutual agreement that works for both sides. It's about finding the common ground eventually. It doesn't happen straight away. Uh, it doesn't mean there isn't friction. The intent behind the questioning should be to diagnose the real problem and the outcome that the customer wants, not just to make a transaction so you can hit your quarterly number. Well, this uh, is why band is so out of date, right? Ah, oh, Bant is total bollocks. Because Bant is very me-centric. It's always focusing on whether 
the person in front of me is suitable for me, have the authority for me, have the budget for me. And I think, you know, you do well to ask some of those questions, but to, to, to hinge your performance and the way you behave and the way that you proceed on that approach is very, very ineffective at best, being polite and just egocentric at worst, you know. That was how I was taught when I when I started my my sales career. I mean, time has moved on and techniques have improved. But even the word technique, you know, to the point of your last conversation, I thought was utterly true. Techniques are not the be all and end all. If you come to the conversation with an inherent desire to find out, to see if you can hurt, help them, to serve them, to solve a problem, and you do that from this genuine place of inquisitiveness, this inquiry. You act as an agent of possibility and change for that person as opposed to a salesperson that has really the ulterior motive of getting to a point in the conversation where I can determine whether there's money for me or not. Because that's what it comes down to. It's, I'm doing this because I want to get a contract that will give me money. And I think when I'm in, certainly in the book, I talk about you know, this byproduct is more powerful or rather, the concept of serving first the byproduct second is more powerful when you when you're able to detach from the outcome. But that that calls into question the heart of the way that we manage as sales leaders because everything is always about this future state. If you do well, you will be. If you can do this consistently, you will be. It's always never in the moment. What's happening now? Be here. Listen. Listen fiercely. And you know what? I heard a wonderful saying from someone the other day. Just because you're not speaking doesn't mean you're listening. And I thought that was so true, right? It's not waiting for the pauses in the conversation to speak rather than the stillness to see what arises from it. I love the idea of stillness, that being fully present. I, I essentially stole a lot of ideas and cobbled them all together in this model, which I call above the line, below the line. And it's the juxtaposition of the drama triangle versus the winner's triangle. The drama triangle describes every fucked up, broken, dysfunctional, dissatisfying relationship you can or will ever have on three points of a triangle. It's beautifully elegant. You have the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. And ego thrives on drama. And the minute you're sucked into one of those three positions or you take one of those three positions, your ego is in the way. And it's you between the customer or the prospect and their decision to make an investment. The winner's triangle is Bruce Lee was asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else. So instead of being a victim, you're vulnerable. You put yourself in a position where you may get hurt, where you could be wounded, and you do it anyway. It's a sign of courage. You're assertive. So instead of being aggressive, you're assertive. You clearly set and establish boundaries. You are willing to enter into constructive conflict. You understand that you have rights. And then you're nurturing and you're empathic. One of my mentors, a chap called Mark Goulston, says all human beings want to be heard, feel felt, and be understood. And the important bit of, the most important bit of that is feeling what someone else is feeling. It's being able to put yourself in their skin and understand uh, and empathize without being patronizing, without being uh, sycophantic. Just recognize where they are, meet them where they are. 
And that's all about being fully present because the drama triangle is all about attachment. It's worrying about the future, being beaten with the carrot, or worrying about the past and dragging those feelings into the present and reliving them all over and over and over again and making yourself the issue. The customer doesn't give a damn. They don't care about your quota. They don't care whether you win present, get onto President's Club and go off to Barbados. They don't care whether you can get your mortgage paid, being perfectly blunt. What they care about is, can you help? And the part of the problem here is that if you are not still and you're not listening, not only for the meaning and also the intent, but what's not being said, then you miss out on a huge amount of communication. And what I'm frustrated by is listening is not a skill that is taught. It should be taught at school. And if you're in sales, absolutely, you should, be le- you should learn how to listen. Why is it that listening is not the first thing that salespeople are taught? If you're not telling, you're not selling. I think that was the old mantra, wasn't it? Mm. It was this idea that you have to present, you have to broadcast. And I so I don't think that sales was never, listening was never taught. I just don't think it was recognized as being the impactful tool or impactful dimension to the exchange. Because, you know, to have a conversation with someone, hopefully someone's speaking at the same time someone's listening rather than both parties speaking over each other. It's attention span and it's ego and it's what what we are conditioned to actually seek out, which is comfort. And and some people are inherently uncomfortable at being quiet because they need to express themselves. That's that egoic sense of I need to be seen and need to stand out. So everything is a battle of egos and they they want to dominate or they want to control the narrative. You know, that framing part you've spoken about where we're living, dragging the past with us, most of what happens for most people until they have their, I hate to say the awakening moment because that sounds a bit corny, but they have that realisation that there is maybe something running in the background of their thinking process. It's framing how they interact with this moment. And that non-listening is because they're, they're, what they're actually doing is they're, they're, they're speaking in the head. They're having this mental dialogue while something's going on and they're constructing their best position as a response. So it's not a case they're, they're, they're not taught to listen. They're not taught to be still because listening comes from the, for, for me anyway, listening comes from that stillness, allowing what is there to be. That's the, that, you know, if we could allow everything, then we'd be a lot calmer and happier in our lives. But we tend to frame what we're engaging with through past filters, past experiences. We don't know that's happening. And then we have this dialogue running that's always seeking to best position us. And, you know, I, don't, I used to think the ego was evil. It's not. It's a child. It's this, it's this pedantic little child that's spoiled and it wants its way. And it's always seeking to reinforce its sense of identity, its sense of separateness. And when the, when the ego is quiet, it's amazing what comes up when we quieten down. Yeah? Even in conversation with two people, just by shutting up and listening, what that other person has to say is probably a lot more interesting than what you might regurgitate from your, from your egoic perspective. This then speaks to something else that I see far too much of and I wish we could do away with. 
which is the rush to pitch, the rush to, rush to present, the rush to demo, uh, the rush to write a proposal. There is nowhere near enough time taken to go through the diagnosis process to establish your rights. So, sorry, say again? The discovery, yeah? Yeah. The problem is that salespeople so rarely, especially early in their career, but I still, I know people 20, 30 years in sales who have very, very poor business acumen. They don't really understand the moving parts within their customers and prospects' businesses. They don't understand the pressure and the role functions, the, uh, the fires they have to put out, the demands on their time, the interplay between the different silos and departments, the jobs that they're trying to get done, the struggling moments. And they, they don't understand that if they fix one thing without taking into account other parts of the machine, then chances are their fix will create more problems. And they don't take enough time to see the bigger picture. I've done a series of interviews with CXOs of every hue and color, shape, and you know, size of business. And what's really fascinating is these recurrent themes. They look forward to salespeople turning up if they believe that they're going to end up smarter at the end of that conversation. But they're not going to end up smarter if a salesperson just comes with a canned pitch. They're not going to end up smarter if the salesperson just turns up in the hope that they can show their ugly kid and do the demo, because that doesn't help them. They need us to help them understand the root cause of their problem. They need to help to understand how they can do things better. So they're looking to us for leadership, for a safe pair of hands, for insight. But that happens so rarely which explains why in the LinkedIn State of the Nation report at the end of 2020, the number one thing that customers wanted was salespeople to listen. And 67% of people surveyed in that survey said that they consider sales and salespeople to be morally bankrupt. Now, that's not the world I, I live in, and it's not the no. world my clients live in, but I, it has to be out there. How did we get to this point? If I tell you my time is precious and get to the point, then I'm going to feel obliged to get to the point. If a salesperson says, well, there's another way, let me understand more about your situation. But they do it in a, in a clumsy and inarticulate manner. Marcus, what I think is that there is a situation where the person sitting in front of you is subconsciously or consciously being evaluated as to whether they can add value. And we do that by, we, we, we look at the questions that we're asked, you know, are you asking me what I would consider useful or intelligent questions that are designed to help me and reveal my situation? But we, you know, gone are the days where tell me what keeps you awake at night and I'll see if I can fix the problem for you. It doesn't work that way. The leaders of today are sweated assets in organizations. They have less team members than they perhaps did a few 10 years ago. They're doing more themselves. They're more, they're certainly more educated as a buyer. And I think, you know, a lot of the time they're only looking to validate their own, their own, their own conclusions rather than 
they're not really looking to be educated a lot of the time. So I'm not sure I agree with that. I think a lot of the time they have an idea of what they're going to buy. They need to get three quotes. So they've got it, got you in there to validate the decision they made three months ago. And you may or may not have been that first party they connected with. And if you did your job well and you were a, a proficient salesperson, you sufficiently impacted upon them a perception that allows them to evaluate successfully the value of your offering. But quite often, salespeople are ineloquent in their, their investigation because they're not taught to question in a way that doesn't feel like the Spanish Inquisition. It's not about questions. It's about conversation. It's not about striking things off a list. It's about understanding the conversation can move where the conversation takes it. But there's the intention behind the conversation is to, to understand, as you say, that baseline of operation. How is the company running today? How does that impact upon you emotionally? Would your life be better? How does that, how does that, how does that? And it's just being interested. And if someone comes to me like that, well, I love good salespeople, you know, I, always give people the benefit of the 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 moment to, to talk to me if they go about it in the right way I, I love being quote unquote sold to when it's done properly when it's not I actually stop people and tell them you know you know this isn't working your approach isn't helpful they don't particularly like that and maybe that's my ego wanting them to to recognize that but when it's done well it's an art form I look to Larry Levine and Anthony Amarino. Both of them took a good beating from a customer, and that was their turning point. It was when they realized that they had butchered the sales conversation, and the customer did them the service of saying, you know, this isn't working. Go out, take your coat with you, come back in five minutes, and let's start again. Yeah. And what I want you to do is I want you to actually pay attention. I want you to understand my situation. I want you to listen. And both of those guys I hold in high esteem. And I, I see this you know, through, throughout my career as well. My clients have been my best teachers. I sincerely apologize to many of you for the butchery and you know, the sales genocide that I committed along the way because I was worried about my outcome. I wanted to prove I was the smartest person in the room. A good salesperson makes the customer the hero. Your job is to be a guide. Your job is to facilitate decisions. And I, I loved that expression you said earlier about being an agent of possibility. I think far too often, salespeople are so fixated on trying to sell that they forget that people hate to be sold. They love to buy. What they want is a partner. They want someone to take them through a process where they can discover for themselves why they need to change. And some of the best research that I've read recently came from Corporate Visions. And the way they've broken down the type of story that you should be telling, when you should tell it. Uh, Mike Adams' approach to storytelling, I think, is very healthy as well, where you need to understand the potency of good story having listened to what the customer has said so that you're contextually relevant. Your marketing needs to be contextually appropriate for where your prospect is because not everybody is in the market to buy or needs what you have to offer now. And this is why Bant is total bollocks because 
may be the case that they could be a customer in the future, but by how you behave, you've managed to alienate them. And far too many managers are pushing their salespeople to go through their prospect list. Well, do your bloody research. Identify where these people are in their cycle. Are they at the point where they actually could need to have a conversation with you? Or are they at the point where what they're really doing is making space? They're trying to get uh, an understanding of what might be possible. And meet them where they are. Don't try and shoehorn them into a sales process because it's never going to work. Buyers buy when they are ready for their reasons, not yours. Sometimes people don't appreciate the impact of their situations until they've been walked through it. So mm-hmm. when talking, to, and, and, and genuinely, early this from sort of manipulative sense, but when you start crystallizing questions in the mind of the prospect or the person in front of you, they may have been aware of it in the background, but when you bring it to the forefront and you know they start to examine the concept in, in, in consideration of the wider picture, it may refocus their, their need for attention on that subject. So sometimes it's not saying that the salesperson executes a sale in their own timescale, but they refocus the person's attention as to its order of priority against other things on their, on their to-do list, as it were. Would you agree with that? We're in violent agreement. The reality is that if a good salesperson, through their questioning, can destabilize someone's current preferences by having done their research and then deliver insightful questions, this is why Challenger is a great system when applied judiciously. The problem is many people turned up some 23-year-old snot-nosed straight out of school who knew the square root of fuck all about anything. And they turn up and they're just insulting. I see this in my early career with Sandler. I would go in, I would beat them uh, with their pain. And it was difficult because, it, and, and it was excruciating, if I'm being perfectly honest, because I was clumsy with it. It lacked empathy. But as I learned and I grew, Um, I learned that I needed to turn up with compassion. I needed to turn up and be fully present, listen to what they were telling me, listen for the gaps, listen for the silences, the inflection, the nuance, and listen to where they stumble. And in that stillness, in that silence, then you pick up on the nuance and you start to get a sense of what they really want help them to see their world through a different lens. So yeah, I'm absolutely with you there. But the problem uh, too often is that the salesperson just comes along and bludgeons the poor buggers to death. And then they wonder why they never get a second meeting. Now you look at the inefficiency of this, the extraordinary cost of bad marketing and bad salesmanship. You look at how much it costs to get in front of a prospect. You've got all of those, uh, the money that's been spent on marketing to generate a marketing qualified lead, all of the prospecting time. And on average, only one out of eight first meetings result in a second. Now, one in 14 effectives result in a meeting. One in 33 dials result in an effective. So you work those multipliers out. So 33 times 14 times eight, and you 
correlate that to the time of the salesperson, then you add to that the cost of the number of leads that you have to throw in at the top of the funnel to get even those dials done, you're now talking about an inordinate amount of money. So the hidden cost of sale, the hidden cost of marketing, the lack of understanding of why people buy is enormous. Mm-hmm. And this is the stuff that we need to re- we need to humanize selling. We need to humanize our marketing again instead of being obsessed with data metrics and just you know all this technology spaghetti and churning people through the machine. These are not organic ATM machines. They're living, breathing, mostly sentient human beings. They have needs. They have emotions. And I think too often that's lost in the mechanics of the marketing and sales process. Your thoughts? You touched upon something, which it kind of, I always, I, I always, for me, things always seem to come back to my own sense of self-awareness. And that tipping point is when you stop being self-obsessed and customer-obsessed, because those cues, to go back to what you were talking about initially, the cues that you can receive in that engagement, in that conversation that allows you to navigate more effectively, you can't do that if you're, if you're constantly thinking. You have to come from that observation and awareness rather than internal sort of preoccupation. But I also think that what goes hand in hand with that is that the realisation that you said we're all people, we're all people playing roles. We're all complicit in this, this, this agreement that I'm going to be the salesperson, you're going to be the prospect, and I'm going to do... And we, we are so identified to the roles that we're playing. We put up this level of... It's a facade around us. We present who we want the world to see. It's our ego, yeah? And they do the same. And so we're not two people communicating. We're two people with egos communicating, if they're communicating at all. And I think one of the values of being more present and mindful and in the moment, it allows for the, I don't know about abandonment, but temporarily dropping of that facade, of that barrier, and allowing two people to communicate, which is one of the reasons why I actually am quite in favor of doing business away from the office, because and you change your environment, it happens that you can more easily adopt a different approach to something because it's not that energetically repeated sort of approach, environment, et cetera, that contributes to the same outcomes. And I've seen more benefit and more positive consequence from trying to let go of these you know, this is who I am, this is what I want. And I always encourage my team, certainly towards the end, I didn't know that I was doing this. I think a lot of these, what I wrote about in the book, I didn't know when I was in the job. Some of it I was doing intuitively. Some of it was kind of done really badly. Some of it has become awareness after the fact that I've investigated. But a lot of the time I was just recognizing there was more benefit of having conversations away from the traditional structures allowing people to be more human. It's not the same as taking people on corporate jollies, but just having that meeting in a coffee shop or somewhere suitable that allows that communication to happen more, you know, I hate authentic. It's such an inauthentic word, but more naturally, should I say. I love the word authentic if you actually have the right intent. I know we were touching on it earlier on uh, in the preamble around this sort of faux altru- altruism, um, you know, where 
corporates are saying, oh, you've got to be more authentic. That comes across as insincere. Yeah. Um, if you don't turn up with a service mentality, if you don't turn up with the express desire to be, uh, see if you can help, and if you can help, are you the most appropriate person or company to do so? Then it all turns to shit. And customers see through this. You know, we, we forget that there's 300 million years of evolutionary hard wiring. And buyers get a sense that we don't have their best interests at heart if we don't have their best interests at heart. If we are selfishly orientated, if we are worried about what our boss is going to say, if we're more concerned about making the mortgage payment, then they will pick up on it because you get reflected back what you project out. And the uh, nervous system is set up, it's highly attuned to look for threats. And you cannot turn up representing any form of threat because the moment you do, the moment you project uncertainty and doubt, that triggers an amygdala response. I remember interviewing a CEO recently, and one thing he said, which was really insightful, is if I have any doubt about your ability to deliver or your longevity, I will hold back until the final moment, and then I'm going to stiff you on the fees because I need to make sure that I have an insurance policy. So rather than paying you, I want you to cover my costs because if it goes wrong, I want to know that I'm not going to be out of pocket. Mm. And this is why people end up in these last-minute negotiations. You know, it's like when you stop acting like, when, they, when, when customers stop seeing you as, um, well, when you stop seeing customers as a means to make money, they're going to stop seeing you as someone trying to take it from them. Yeah? It's that yeah. energy, isn't it? That presupposition is I'm here to make money from you. And that's not a great start. I interviewed a chap called Barnaby Winter recently, and he came up with a lovely concept, which I think is very, very strong. And this speaks to the complacency that, organizations and uh, salespeople often have about customers. And you see this uh, often in retail. You know, Sky will give a better offer to new customers than to existing. And you see this uh, very often with loyalty schemes. Often it feels like salespeople only turn up for the drive-by shooting. When there's a renewal conversation to be had, you see them once every three years and they don't take care. And this then speaks to the earlier bit of the conversation where I think we need to rethink the role of salespeople, hunters versus farmers. I think that the salesperson should see the sale through the transaction and should be responsible for the care of that customer throughout its life, uh, their life cycle. And there's real value in understanding that the transaction is over when the money hits your account. The sale is only complete when the customer comes back and says, Taryn, I had my doubts, but thank God, best decision we ever made was working with you. Thank you so much. We've achieved everything we hoped for and more. That's when the this initial sale is complete. But most organizations are so fixated on new business. They're so fixated on the acquisition of new logos that they don't take care of their customers as well as they should. Now, this isn't for everyone, but you see so many organizations grow really rapidly and 
it's the the logo acquisition that they're chasing. It's the revenue, not the profitability. It results in high churn rates. It results in high dis, uh, dissatisfaction, not only of the customer, but also of employees. And you only have to look at what people on Glassdoor are saying, uh, Motley Fool, you know, all of these things. You're, you're seeing all of this stuff going on in the background. I think executives really need to rethink how they approach the customer and how they approach the employee. So let's spend the last few minutes talking about that. What are your thoughts in terms of revisiting and redirecting corporate uh, executive corporate culture? Well, the trouble is it has to start with the very top. And the top becomes so detached from, quite often it becomes detached from the reality of uh, the troops that the intentions, whether they're positive or otherwise, seem to get lost in the translation. I've been fortunate enough to work with some companies that have had strong leadership and the right attitude towards customers and customer satisfaction. We seem to have salespeople that work both hunting and farming. So you, you, you looked after your accounts when you brought them on. You didn't hand them off immediately. And I think from there was one of the reasons, certainly when we were working for Abudnik, which was a metropolitan fiber provider, we had such sticky customers. I mean, the product was sticky in itself, but they liked us. They kept buying and they stayed with us for a long time. And I think that was a very good measure. Plus, we didn't have high attrition rate in salespeople either. Another good reflector, I think, because, you know, providing people are performing. It's not, it's not like when I was at BT, but it's a very different attitude. But I think the, the alignment of the, the executive team, if you reward people correctly, they'll encourage certain behaviors. So I think that realignment has to start with how the company is rewarding its people and to make sure that it's aligned with the outcomes that we we think are better for our customers, right? Absolutely. But then that speaks to executive reward and compensation. And it also forces us to ask the question about investors and um, shareholders, because I think it takes a very, very brave leader to stand up to those investors and those shareholders and say, well, hang on a second, we're going to do things differently. Now, uh, one example I've cited a couple of times on the podcast is Palo Alto Networks. Patty Hatter grew professional services revenues in one quarter for the year by 93% by shifting their pricing to outcome-based pricing, which customers loved because they pay for the outcome. That's what they do. They hire the outcome for as long as it's relevant. And I think we need to really uh, reconsider how we charge, we need to reconsider how we compensate, we need to reconsider how we measure. And these are big, hairy-ass questions that I think we've, we've got to, as a profession, really knuckle down to some hard thinking and do some difficult work. Because Gartner came out with a report in December 2020 that said that 33% of business-to-business buyers want a 100% seller-free buying experience. Now, that, again, is another indictment. You know, the fact that 67% in the LinkedIn survey say that uh, sales and salespeople are morally bankrupt, plus the Gartner report, there has to be an alarm bell ringing at an executive level. But my worry here is that there's too much of a vested interest 
and fusty old buggers and you know you my age then you look at obviously significantly younger than me the people who are in corporate at senior levels i don't think are likely to want to change things but they will pay a heavy price because the customers will talk with their feet yeah definitely and i think provided that there is always the opportunity to shift from supplier to different supplier that one we're seeing far more weight being given to the qualities that we've been talking about and alluding to within the supplier organizations that people buy from that typically what happens is the the, the dinosaurs get a sense of it far too late and they're already going to the way of the dodo they're going to be they're going to be extinct and tastes like chicken there true so i don't know i think i've seen lots of uh, what I want to see, I think what will come out in the next couple of years is to see it, the people that have been speaking about this this shift, whether it was genuine, to see if it translates to a few years' time when their companies have scaled and they've managed to maintain that approach, behavior, and, and, and I don't like ideology, but the, 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 the mindset of it, rather than it's fashionable, because it is genuinely fashionable to speak this way, especially if you can afford to speak this way. And in terms of the way you run your business, you've got someone giving you from VC 100 million to do it. I can do what I want with other people's money. So I want to see if it translates to something they truly believe in rather than it's, it's nice PR. I was chatting to David Massover this morning and we were talking about how we can prove demonstrably to investors and senior executives the business case for doing this. Um, I'd be curious to uh, learn of examples where people live and breathe that conscious sale where they have been successful and it's allowed them to scale and grow whilst maintaining the integrity and the fundamentals of their business? I can speak clearly from my own experiences. I mean, I can speak for some clients. I don't know if they want to name them, but I've seen such dramatic shifts in the way, the, the results I've encountered from just changing this approach from people that you've sat down with, spoken with, that haven't moved forward with, then they've gone to other organizations only to call you back because, as to your point before, the situation wasn't right for them in that moment, but cut to a different time, different situation, and everything is aligned. You impacted upon them sufficiently well that it was merely a delayed result rather than a no result. Yeah, It was a seed planted today. It's like a tree to be enjoyed in, by, in the future. and. I've worked with some tech companies in the US. Uh, you know, I'm one person, so I, I have limited impact in terms of how it gets rolled out in any scale. But shifting the, the perception away from what I'm trying to do for my business rather than how can I impact upon the client and what it means to them individually, departmentally, organizationally, how that multiplies in terms of framing conversations with different stakeholders it's it's been very useful to stand out just from the perspective of oh you're coming with a fresh message you're coming with a fresh approach it may may be that your offering isn't right for us but what was immediately recognized was conversations were accelerating far more fluidly and and more easily when they approached it from the point of view of it's not about me it's about how can i solve your problem 
And I think a lot of this means understanding the client before you start talking to them. If you go in there and we've never met before and I try and do this approach, it will have a limited impact because I don't understand maybe as much as I could do that would allow me to better empathize with your circumstances and situations, which is why, you know, for, for founders that are in this early growth stage or haven't got their first customer stage, every one of those customer validation conversations is, is gold, absolute gold for understanding because they may well become your customer in the future. They may not, but you're learning something about an industry, which is why I'm a very, 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 um, I'm an advocate of focusing on market verticals and sectors so that you can better understand it. You know, the more I can understand about the problems encountered in the macrocosm, it, the better I can speak to the situation in the microcosm. I can draw on a number of examples where people have behaved in this way. So a salesperson that I work with today, he uh, took a $5 million uh, opportunity and turned it into a $100 million opportunity, which closed under nine months because he focused on the customer and he focused on the partners as well. Because I think increasingly understanding you, the ecosystem in which your partners operate in is going to be really very important. I think collaborative selling, um, particularly in tech, is going to be uh, vital. I can think of another example of a client uh, that I work with today. And when we started working with them, they had 62 basically non-opportunities in their pipeline. Today, they have 13 and a half million of genuine opportunities, and that's four months in, with a very significant large financial institutions. can think of another client I worked with a couple of years back who had to phoenix her business because she'd been basically lost a proxy battle. And in her first month, she did 3,000. In her second month, she did 13,000. In her third month, she closed a half a million dollar deal. Now, this was all about focus on the customer and their outcomes. It was not about her. It wasn't about her proposition. The product almost never got spoken about because no one cares. And I, I can cite example after example of the emphasis of putting the customer at the heart of everything that you do. I would love to hear war stories from people who have made that shift. So for those of you who are listening, please get in touch with me. I'll interview you about them if uh, you're interested, or we can talk about them in the threads on LinkedIn and Facebook, Twitter, and so on. We've come to time, sadly, uh, Taryn. And this has been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me on. It's been, it's been great. Excellent. Tell me this. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? My ego. Uh, it, it's, it's an ongoing battle. Clubhouse has brought that, brought that back into focus. <laughs> uh, yeah, getting out of my own way. The, the, the usual things of once you've opened Pandora's box, you can't you can't close it. So it's that constant awareness and constant questioning. It's growth, but it, it's not always easy. Who holds up the ugly mirror for you? <laughs> my my partner, my girlfriend. She's very good at that. <laughs> um, but I, I I I find it very grounding. It's no, it's essential. Absolutely. Certainly. I've got half a dozen accountability partners and they're very useful for keeping my feet on the ground. Tell me this, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and advise the idiot Taron age 23. 
what what choice bit of advice would you whisper in his ear that you know he'd have probably have ignored but would have been worthwhile? Do you know what? I, that, of all the questions you gave me to consider before this podcast, that's the one I've agonised on the most. And I've agonised on it for this simple reason. I'm really happy with who I am and how I am and what I'm doing in the sense that I find actually for the first time, well, for the last five years, I've actually felt like I have a purpose that's adding value to society and to the world and not just taking. I've done a lot of taking. And I think that the reason I'm the person I am today is because of all the mistakes. And I've made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> um, and we've broken all... enough bones. I've <laughs> made, I've embarrassed myself. I've, and I'm not sure that changing something by giving my own, my younger self advice would have brought me to here I am today. And I, and I question, so, but to, to, to humor what, to, to humor the question, I think what I'd probably say is, and this is maybe not the answer you're looking for, but just um, being aware of the, the, the consequences of my drinking, it had a massive impact on me negatively. And, and you know, no, I nearly died. You know, I, I, from, from that experience, at 22, living in the United States, I, I had a, a, an accident where I fell off a very tall building and broke bones, and um, I'm lucky to be here. And it, wow. drinking has probably been my biggest inhibitor to actually realizing my true potential. And it That's took very honest. a long time, a long, long time to get that where I could have the, the maturity with it and not let it dominate me. I wasn't an alky where I was rolling around, but I did things and I said things and I behaved in ways that I would never have dreamed of behaving, saying or doing any other time in my life. So, yeah. That's very honest. Thank you. Tell me this, in terms of key influences stuff that you've read, you're watching, you're listening to, uh, what would you recommend to others? I've always loved literature, but for the last probably five, ten years, I've loved audiobooks, and I'm an avid consumer of audiobooks. Eckhart Tolle has been a huge impact on me, just to pull back the veil of my own sort of inner workings. I have very much enjoyed the work of Jordan Peterson. He's, He's really, really... He speaks a lot of sense, basically, and it just made sense to listen to. Eckhart Tolle, Noam Chomsky, I've always found his perspective very, very uh, insightful in the global global arena. But things like Warren Buffett and Elon Musk, I've, I've really enjoyed their work in terms of what they're doing. Elon, Warren Buffett's probably my hero in the sense of how he's just gone from his humble beginnings to, to such lofty heights, but maintaining a sense of humility about it. He doesn't, he doesn't exude this uber wealth that some of the other billionaires have often been accused of doing so. But my, my, my main focus is, you know, business books and, and self-development, you know, likes of Eckhart Tolle, the likes of um, Wayne Dyer, the likes of uh, David Hawkins, if you're familiar with Power Versus Force, an incredible book. Yeah, uh, very good book. Yeah, just incredible in terms of the way that it makes you re- revisit certain paradigms and ideas that we have we've lived with without question i think you'll really enjoy peter block's the right use of power yeah Um, that's really worth a read or a listen it's only available on audio you'll be pleased to hear excellent how can people get hold of you i am available to connect with on linkedin and i welcome people if they have an interest in you know understanding more about what i do or just having a conversation linkedin i'm i host a number of rooms on clubhouse and uh, always, always welcome 
anybody to come in and join the conversation. It's much better as a conversation. And I'm launching my first mindset pod, well, mindset group tomorrow where we're calling uh, Mind the Gap to Gap the Mind. It's on Zoom and it's uh, an open dialogue about bringing more mindful awareness into the business realm. And the spaces are available on my, my page. I would love to come on to Clubhouse because I've my brief experience and interaction with it has been a lot of noise, but having some really good, meaningful conversations. And with the launch of the Sales of Force for Good community, I see Clubhouse as a really powerful tool to air these um, topics and discuss them. So I'd love some guidance and some help. No, we must. We spoke about it before, and I absolutely would love to do that with you as well. So we can, we can sort that up offline. Fabulous. And uh, we'll we'll get involved in some of these knife fights as well. Yeah, um, definitely. So, Taryn Hughes, thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy. No, my pleasure been my Marcus. Thank you. So if you are the owner of a tech company and you're looking to grow your business, but you want to scale at pace and you don't want the wheels to come off, You want to build a highly engaged and highly productive team of marketers, salespeople, customer success, account growth people, uh, middle management. And what you really want to do is build a business on strong fundamentals with customers for life who stay with you for decades. Then please do get in touch. My email is marcus at laughs-last.com. If you're interested in finding out more about the Sales of Force for Good mission, then please do get in touch. We're here to remind us that we exist because of not in spite of the customer. And we're here to serve, to raise the sales profession and make it an aspirational career choice and create the right conditions for the next generation of salespeople and sales leaders. So you can reach me either via email or through direct message on LinkedIn. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if um, you feel the urge, go to Apple Podcasts, scroll about just below the fold, and leave an honest review. It can be one star, five star, or anywhere in between. And I'd love to hear from you if you think you'd be a good guest. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.